Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, Herstory Heroes. Strap in and strap on for another exciting episode of Whining About Herstory, the women's history podcast where two longtime BFFs drink wine or wherever the hell is handy and chat about women from history you probably have never heard of. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And thank you so much for joining us for this quarantine-friendly episode. Woot woot. Kelly and I have been through some serious shit the past week. Uh, We've had audio not record. We've had corrupted files. We've had notes literally disappear from the face of the planet. But nevertheless, we are persisting and we are fucking here for you to bring you your weekly dose of herstory magic. (laughs) Woot woot. Oh, thank God. (laughs) By the way, if this episode doesn't work, I'm fucking done. Like, I'm nope, just going to rage we're quit We're done until next everything. week. <laughs> and I'm saying it on the podcast because I hope people hear it. And, like, that plays in with my magical thinking. No, I've said it on the podcast. So this needs to get out there because I'm just right? bitching. <laughs> That's what I was like. Like, I, I debated re-recording my audio last night. And I was like, nope, I'm done. I just, I can't. I can't do this right now. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's been a trip. Like, and here's the funny thing: we're not even doing that much different. We are recording remotely, but Kelly's still using our magic black box. I'm using my computer, which we used to do way back in the day. And I don't know what's happening. This like COVID, these COVID vibes are seeping into our podcast, right? In a bad way. Yeah, but we're here, and we have no fear. <laughs> We're here. Yeah, we can't say the middle part. We're here and we have no fear. <laughs> so I I do have a say their name for this week. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to a uh, local drag king, Alexandra Rocks. He's based up in the in Minneapolis. And nice. obviously during this time, performers are really hurting. You can't go to the theater. You can't go to bars. And people are losing income and it sucks. And so what a lot of performers, including Alexandra, on sorry, Alexandra are doing, uh, are putting on virtual shows. So like they're live streaming on Instagram, putting on shows, and Alexandra is putting on the Rocks Hard Variety Show. And I, I like absolutely that. love that name. That is so fantastic. Makes me so happy. And so it's not just him. It's a bunch of other performers. And I know there are some local, there may be some who are from other parts of the country because everyone just streams in from wherever they can, and is going to be on the second and fourth Saturday of every month until this shit just goes away and we can go to the theater and we can go to the club again. Um, But you can tune in. The next one is actually uh, April 11th, so this Saturday upon this recording. Um at 9.30 p.m. So it's always the second and fourth Saturday of every month at 9.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. And you can find him at Alexandro Rocks on Instagram. That's A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-O-R-O-X. And you can also find him at alexandrorocks.com. And that has information about the different live streams. And he's also in one that he's not putting on called Queer Circus Online. And oh. that 
it, it's a it's a similar thing, but they've got like a bunch of like acrobatics too, and he's actually oh, performing cool. in those also. And those are on the first and third Saturday of every month. So, so you every can have a Saturday, whole month. You could go see him. Yeah, you can you can go see uh, a variety show of different performers. There's drag, there's burlesque, there's acrobatics. I saw one. There is a woman who like ties her hair into a bun and then loops a rope through the bun and does acrobatics like from her head. She's swinging from her hair. Oh, that sounds like it would be so painful. But I guess when all your hair is together, it's less painful. Yeah. But still. And there must be like a special way to do that bun because like the videos are really amazing and she's very, very skilled, but I got a headache watching it just like, oh, my hair. It's all just right. going to rip out. But yeah, so if you guys want to support uh, some performers who could really use it right now, tune into the Rocks Hard Variety Show. Yeah, that sounds great. That's a great shout out. Yep. And then you can actually tip during the show, too. They use uh, Venmo. Oh, which so, is really so like cool. just kind of like if you were in person where you're like, oh, I like this. Let's, you know, give them a tip or something. Exactly. And you may not be able to like slip it in the, the G string or whatever, which I mean, I get it, guys. That's a ton of fun. Maybe and, they'll like, just they have their own kiss. money on hand and do it for you on the video. They see they got a Vimeo tip and they suddenly just like whip out a 10 and like stick it somewhere provocative. <laughs> yep. That's what I would Love do. Love it. Love it. But yeah, so that's my say their name. Well then, I guess we should get into what we're drinking tonight. What are you drinking, Emily? Um, so the theme of this week is quarantinis, which I've decided are just whatever the hell you have around the house. Uh, I'm trying to leave the house as little as possible. I do have a giant box of wine order coming in, but until it is here, I am going to be drinking some Ace Pear Cider tonight. That sounds delicious. I really like pear cider. Yeah, this is actually one of my favorites. So they also have a, a pineapple, and it's really good, but it's a little, like, it's a little sweeter than I'm usually in the mood for, but the pear is, like, pretty mellow. And I'm going to see if I can, like, pop this top in my mic. Ah! Ah! It Day keeps... two, and you still can't do this. Oh, my God. This is awful. I suck at this. Oh, there we go. Woohoo. Yay. I can you got drink your, now. You got your drink open. Congratulations. Yay, I'm a grown-up. <laughs> and I am drinking our one-year anniversary wine because I miss you. Aww. I love you. I love you, too. It's It's weird going from seeing each other every week to... It's been, you know, three or four weeks since we've seen each other in person now, and it's just, it's weird. Right. I think the last episode we recorded in person was uh, where we covered Kate Atwood's books. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that was an eternity. Oh, my God, you guys. It's been forever. I've been seriously debating with the idea of, like, going on a walk and video chatting with someone who is also on a walk, so I can feel like I'm going on a walk with someone because I'm so desperate for social interaction. <laughs> So you just walk on opposite sides of the path. You just go to the same park and walk we just, on opposite sides of the path. We need, like, 
you know those belts that uh people will put around themselves and then it has a leash for the dog so that they can just run and the dog will stay beside them I want one of those, except we just need to make sure it's taut the whole time and like we just right. You you find a six foot length of leash or cord, yeah, and you all then you know how far away you are from the other person. Yes. Oh my god, I did go on a really nice long walk with Charlie the other day, uh, and I saw a ton of people. I'm like, you guys, this is not like socialize and playtime, like. We need to be taking this a little more seriously. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, here's the thing. I get it because I really keep wanting to hit up all my friends being like, do you want to go for a walk? Do you want to go for a walk? And I'm like, no, because if I do that, then I can't judge other people. Right. Well, and it's funny because people are always people are like, oh, it's so it's so funny because normally everyone's like, no, I want to stay in my house. And now everyone's like, I need to be outside. Well, here's the other thing, especially for us Minnesotans, we just got through winter. We actually had the most mild winter that I can remember. Like, I can't remember a winter that didn't make me want to just crawl outside and die and end it. I mean, it was worse at the end than it was, like, in what I would call, like, true winter, like, December and stuff. But yeah, it wasn't, like, overall, it wasn't terrible. Like, I feel like it never got, like, bitterly, bitterly cold like it does. Yeah, and we had a few days, but we never got insane snowstorms. We never got, I I don't know, it just seemed like what I imagine other people find a normal winter. But now that the weather is nice, we're so desperate to get out of our houses, and the government's like, but you can't. Actually, you can. You can go on walks, guys. That's still okay, as long as Be safe, like... If you see a group of people, don't go and join the group of people. Like, walk by yourself. Exactly. Yeah, this this isn't time to catch up with your friends. This is time to be smart and safe and do what you need to do to take care of yourself. But please don't put anyone else in danger. Right. Like, staying home and doing nothing. Guys, we were fucking built for this. This is our time. All right. Well, enough of this COVID talk. Actually... I have one more thing, and I'm putting this out there. One more COVID thing. Hold on. No, this is a positive thing. I'm putting this out there into the world. Do you ever find a podcast that's been around for a while, and you're listening to old episodes, and they reference something that happened maybe a year or two ago, and you're like, oh, shit, I remember when that happened. Like, if if you That's going to be this in a year or two. Exactly. And that's what I'm hoping for. I hope someone discovers our podcast, gets to these episodes, is like, Oh, yeah, I remember when COVID happened. Like, oh, that was such a crazy time, and we've just moved past it wonderfully. Things are going to be different on the other side, but we'll get there. Yep. Okay, all done. Kelly, you're starting us off. Oh, we have to cheers. Oh, yeah. What are we? I don't know what's happening because I can't be in the same room with you. What are we cheersing to? Um, The fact that we still get to do this. I think that's good. Cheers. Clink. I don't even have a glass cup today, so it's all I'm you. I'm gonna I'm gonna tap my ring against my glass. That was pathetic. That was the saddest little clink I've ever heard in my goddamn life. It was. I wasn't but gonna the say anything. Good. But... <laughs> I mean, you know the wine is good, so mm-hmm. that was a really that was a good one. So the guy needs to a... do more pet projects of wine, right? And this is such a good opportunity for you to get through all those, like, 
bottles that have like a one or two glasses left of wine in them. Right. I'll just I'll do what Drew normally does when he's not here and finish the wine. Okay. All right, okay. Kelly, you're starting us off today. I am. Are you ready? I am so fucking ready for this. Throw that history in my face. Good. So I'm going to set the scene first, okay? It's the late 19th century. Newspapers are huge, unlike today. <laughs> Just saying. Um, and there's a new breed of journalists that's coming onto the scene that no one has seen anything like them before. One of the authors of... Um, one of the articles I I read called Helen Rappaport, I think summed it up best when they said when she said this. They were young, feisty, courageous, and iconoclastic, and they were women, leaving the security and obscurity of their homes in Midwestern towns and sometimes even the Kansas Prairie. They headed off to the big city in search of an independent life and new challenges. It was a unique, bread in the bone frontier spirit that drove this generation of free American girls as they like to think of themselves. All in various ways were determined to get away from home, controlling parents, and the expectations of a preordained life of marriage, motherhood, and domesticity. Fucking sign me up. That sounds fantastic. Right? I mean, I'm I'm living a life of domesticity, which is fine, but that still sounds like fun to just, like, go off and be your own person and be like, screw this, screw, so screw societal norms, I'm doing this. Exactly, and... For us nowadays, it's a choice, and that's always been the issue. It's not that staying home or falling into maybe traditionally domestic roles is a bad thing, but it's w- it's when that choice is made for you based on the fact that you're a woman or a man or whatever that we right. run into the problem. Also, right. it, was like women- it was like you get married, you settle down. It's what you do. There's exactly. no options. Also, fierce, feisty, and iconoclastic is my new Tinder profile bio. Like, You're going to have the longest Tinder profile ever by the end of our podcast. Okay, I want That you'll someone. never use. <laughs> I know. I don't even want to be on Tinder. Like, even if I was single, Tinder is not my deal. Right. But what I really want is I want a super fan to, like, cut all of the bits that I've said are going to be on my Tinder profile and put them together so I can figure out what the fuck my Tinder profile is going to say. Right. Just write them all up for you and send it to you and be like, this is your Tinder profile. And then it ends with uh, Belganess triflers need not apply. Yeah, right. Exactly. There you go. That's all I need to say. So in this heyday of newspapers, at at least at this time, a new technology had recently come out that had made printing a lot cheaper, which meant lower prices of newspapers, which meant suddenly the factory workers and immigrants and the people, you know, the common people could suddenly afford to buy newspapers. And think about that. Sorry. Think about that for a second where, like, if you were an average working class person which the majority of the country was you didn't get access to the news right how weird is it that newspapers used to be like a luxury item yeah yeah now anyone uh can walk into the library and hop on the internet and check out a billion different news sites of varying credibility but like what how crazy is it that the news was an elitist luxury Right. And I guess it goes kind of hand in hand with education being 
a luxury resource almost at, you know, not necessarily at this time, but shortly before this time. Oh, absolutely. And that's a really good point. I mean, you see it not to bring it back to slavery, everyone's favorite topic, but slaves were not allowed to learn to read because God forbid they become educated and become more independent, autonomous and powerful because knowledge is power, people. Right. Schoolhouse rock. Schoolhouse rock. We're taking it, <laughs> we're taking it way back. Oh, my God. I miss Schoolhouse rock. Why can't we get like a gritty reboot of Schoolhouse rock? Right? Like an adult we're, version? Yeah. The like bill rush shit for president. that's going on right now that we don't understand. <laughs> oh, my God. So this this big audience that suddenly these newspapers got gave rise to a lot of competition, obviously. But this competition wasn't between, I mean, it was between newspapers, but it wasn't like who has the better writers. It was, you know, who has the biggest scandals? Who's the most innovative in how they're doing it? You know, and in this case, it was the pen is mightier than the sword. You know, these these people were finding uh, writers that would just go above and beyond, you know. And in this tumult of all these different things going on this gave rise to um what are what are known as girl stunt reporters you'll probably recognize uh nelly bly is probably the most famous girl stunt reporter i fucking love her and i i don't know if you're gonna go into this why she's so famous but just for our listeners who don't know yeah you can you can touch on it that's i don't go into her so um, she, wa- she was a very famous reporter. She did a ton of stuff, including traveling around the world in like under 80 days or something. But she really got her start. She infiltrated a notorious mental health uh, hospital in New York. I want to say it was on like Blackwell Island or something. But basically, like any mental hospital out of a horror movie, w- like this was that place, but in real life. So she posed as a patient and actually found that a bunch of the patients there weren't fucking insane. Like they had been committed by shitty husbands or maybe they were just really stressed out and were like, oh, my God, I'm so done. And then they got institutionalized forever. So she went in. She got busted out by her newspaper and wrote this article exposing it. And it actually did result in a lot of reforms for mental health facilities. And then she went on and kept doing that and just busting everyone's balls. It was great. Oh, yeah. She was a badass. Love her. And the reason we haven't covered her is just because she's really well known and we try and cover women that aren't as well known. Yeah. She actually has a wine. Ooh. There's a wine brand called Empowered and they have Nellie Bly. I think they have Josephine Baker and they have someone else who I can't remember. Yeah. They do have Josephine Baker because I remember we saw it like three or four weeks after we did her episode and we were like, dang it! We still need to drink some of that fucking wine, though. I want it. (laughs) When we're out of quarantine. So, these uh, girl stunt reporters were female newspaper writers, obviously, in the 1880s and 1890s who went undercover and into many different situations, including dangerous ones like i would say the one nelly bly went into was very dangerous um to reveal you know issues with these different institutions such as terrible factories child labor corrupt doctors and just so these women would would write these stories in first person and they would be serialized over multiple weeks so it would be like 
little novellas of what was going on in these different areas. Um, in an article from the Smithsonian written by Kim Todd said, the heroines offered a version of womanhood in these stories that hadn't appeared in newspapers beforehand. It was brave, charming, fiercely independent, professional and ambitious, yet unabashedly female. And I love that she includes unabashedly female because I think that's kind of a big thing is that before this time, you didn't see very many women as reporters outside of like the women's columns where it was like cooking and sewing and, you know, like, so yeah. the fact that they not only are these women writing stories, but they're writing stories that still have like the feminist tones to them. Well, and we see that a lot where the idea of a strong woman is kind of pigeonholed into one type of woman, which is basically a dude with boobs. Um, Katniss from The Hunger Games is a pretty good example of that. And I'm not saying that's a poor example of a strong woman, but it seems to be the only kind we get. You know, uh, tapered back emotions, physically strong, um, decisive, embodying a lot of those masculine traits. Yeah. But then we have Legally Blonde, where she is... Uh, a strong female character who is super feminine like the definition (laughs) of feminine super feminine like she's so feminine i got my period (laughs) (laughs) in the middle of that movie i was like oh my god red white and red pink what that was that was terrible i'm so sorry but that's really cool that, hey, we're doing this, we're doing a good job, but we're not hiding our femininity and we're not trying right. to embrace masculine traits to be taken seriously. Like, we're being honest about it. Right. Yeah. So not only do these women go undercover to report on the ills of society, but their reporting had real, real world consequences. Like you said, um, Nellie Bly's reporting increased funding for mentally ill um, some of the other women's reporting did labor laws and unions to protect workers. And these women also ended up being very, very popular. Um, in fact, while when this started in the 1880s, it was, like I said, practically impossible for a female reporter to be anywhere but in the ladies' pages, which is what they were called, which is kind of funny to me. Oh my um, God. By the 1900s, so just 20 years later... More articles had women's bylines than men's. Wow. That is so insane. I thought that was um, however, at least in the beginning when it was, you know, popular to have these girl stunt reporters, a lot of the names and the bylines were fake. They wouldn't use their real names because, you know, you don't want that backlash of, oh, I know this person's name. I can go and find them now. Like, I'm sure, like, if Nellie Bly used her real name, um, which was El- Elizabeth Cock. Well, I found two names for her. It was Elizabeth Cochran or Elizabeth Seaman. So I'm sure she got married Shut at some point. Shut the fuck up. I'm sorry. Her last name was Cochran or Seaman? Yeah. <laughs> no wonder she changed it. Like, she should have just changed it to Nellie Ovaries. Like... <laughs> Right. Holy shit. <laughs> I know. And it, it's it's crazy because I know there's plenty of people that don't know that Nellie Bly wasn't her real name. because I didn't know when, that. <laughs> yeah. when And when people talk about her, that's the name they use. You know, there is no other name. It's just, oh, Nellie Bly did this. Like, 
I'm sure she's eternally grateful. She's like, the last thing I want to be known is as Cochrane or Seaman. I'm I'm so over that. Right. <laughs> That's funny. So. Mm, sorry. I'm going to cover three of these women today. But that was that was my backstory on kind of what's going on in this time when these women are doing their research. And there's a there's a not as much, you know, like early or late in these women's lives. Like I don't cover as much of it like I normal like we normally kind of do from birth to death, you know, like we cover it all. But I kind of focused on like their journalism aspects. So there's a little life. I don't know if I included any of their deaths. We'll find out. I don't remember. Um, But I kind of just stuck to the. I stuck to the exciting exciting parts. Awesome. So the first woman I'm going to cover, her real name is Winifred Sweet. Um, Aww, she later gets married name. and ter- it becomes Winifred Sweet Black. That's a bitchin' name. I know, right? I'm like, <laughs> Winifred Sweet's a cool name. And then, like, you married someone and your name just got better. I know. I bet she married him just for the name. She's like, man, Winifred Sweet's a bitchin' name, but... Sweet black, yes, please. Right? She's like, yeah, but I'm keeping my own name and adding yours. Why would you get rid of sweet? Right. That would be a bad decision. So she grew up in, she was born in 1869 and grew up on a farm near Chicago. She attended private schools in Chicago and in Illinois and in Massachusetts. Um, She did, she briefly dabbled in theater but didn't get very far and then from there turned to journalism so this is kind of shortly after Nellie Bly did her thing you know so report our newspapers are looking for women to do this stunt reporting they're looking for their own girl stunt reporter exactly so Winifred Sweet um, took on the pseudonym Annie Laurie Ooh, um, and I scored that. a number of exposés and other things, um, you know, publicity stunts for the newspaper, the San Francisco Examiner. Um, one of the things she did is staging a fainting on the street to test emergency s- services in San Francisco. And I actually found and read the article. Oh, my God. Which was really hard because it's like a photocopied like newspaper so it's like super crappy so i was like it's like the microfiche over my computer and someone like, took a picture really of the microfiche machine screen and put it online basically um but it was really interesting because um i mean so she she dressed in like a really raggedy dress when she did this you know because she's like i don't want to look like a high class woman i want to see how like an average person would be treated so she gets off like the trolley or whatever in the area that she's going to like do this. Cause she wants to do it near a policeman. And there's like a policeman that stands on this intersection that she got off the trolley at that normally like helps women and children cross the street. Cause apparently that's a thing. They didn't have crossing guards. Cops had nothing to do back then. Right. And so she you know, she's acting faint. She, she did her makeup to kind of like make herself look like she was pale and sick. Um, Especially, like, around her eyes and stuff, she said. And, you know, so she's acting faint and the cop doesn't seem to notice. So she, like, walks up and down the street and then, like, passes out, finger quotes. And, like, some men come and help her and they're like, 
oh, tell us where you live. Like, we'll get you home. And she, you know, she's like, she acts like she's passed out so that a cop will come and, you know, like, take her to the hospital because that's what she's trying to get to happen. Right. Um, and when the cops finally come, they're super rough with her. They, like, pick, they, like, instead of, like, carrying her, well, first of all, they didn't have an ambulance, so they called, like, the wagon that brings people to the jail. Jesus and Christ. Instead of, like, picking this woman up that might be, like, ill, they just, one cop grabs one arm, one crap cop grabs the other, and they drag her to the police oh, wagon and then just no. put her in. One cop sits with her in the back to keep her from falling over, and then they go. And apparently it was, like, terrible because this, you know, this is a wag- just a wagon. It was just super rough. You know, it's cobblestone streets at the time, and she mentions that she's, like, had I been, you know, someone with a broken bone or something, I would have gotten more injured in this ride to the hospital, you know, and it took like, apparently 20 minutes for them to get to the hospital. And she also notes that that is more than enough time for a person to bleed to death. Jesus Christ. But like, and not only were, well, not only was like that terrible, but then when she like got to the hospital, they like, she wasn't talking, obviously. So, like, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. And, like, the doctors and nurses and stuff were super mean. They were, like, holding her down. And so they, they gave her a... God, let me see it. Hold on. Let me read this tiny newspaper again. <laughs> can I, I, can I also just say, called. like, she pretended to faint. And then they, like, she probably gets home. And she's got all these bruises everywhere from them just throwing her around. Like, I was fine. <laughs> Oh no, and that, that's what she she does mention that yeah, like she she has she had bruises and stuff from like where the policeman grabbed her and stuff Jesus. like that. So I'm trying to find because they gave her some kind of like solution because they were trying to figure out what she was sick with, and she wouldn't answer their you know questions, and so they were they were trying to figure out if she was drunk, if she poisoned herself. And like one of the things they did is they all smelled her breath and, you know, they were like, oh, well, she's not drunk. You know, oh, it's called a called a hold on. Emetic E-M-E-T-I-C is what it looks like. But basically it was mustard water. What? Which sounds super disgusting, but that's what they give you. Apparently, when you poison yourself, maybe it makes you throw up. I don't oh, really know. Oh, is it know. like old school epicac? I, maybe. I don't. I don't know. I did. I did not research into that. Yeah. But, see, I was gonna so guess they, that they, they just like, gave were her trying cocaine. to give this to her, and she's struggling, and like you know, she's like, I don't want to take. You know, trying not to take it, and the like an a, a, what would be like today, like a senior doctor comes in and like pushes her back and like restrains her head so that they make her take it and then when she struggles away he like throws her on a bed and is like if she acts up anymore like strap her down and then like leaves and he was just a complete dick about it holy shit so he did everything except say bam zoom straight to the moon (laughs) right exactly like it was it was really bad and people did end up getting fired after this came out which is probably a good thing yeah. And the city of San Francisco then instituted an ambulance service. You're welcome, San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, right? She also, during her time, so she did that. And then on the side, um, she also actually did sports reporting, which is really interesting because this was completely new for wom- women. 
Um, and she would she wrote um, sports for the San Francisco Examiner still from 1889 to 1895. And she wrote kind of geared toward all readers, whereas, you know, most sports people, because they were men, they wrote for the men. But she wrote for all readers, including women, who, you know, back then women didn't necessarily get to watch men's sports. Right. Particularly in one of the things I'm about to talk about is, like, boxing. You know, women weren't allowed to watch boxing. But, you know, so this was obviously a very physically aggressive role or not role, but, like, world she was entering with these sports. But, yeah, so one of the famous fights she covered was on... It doesn't say who the fighters were, but it was a Memorial Day fight in 1892 where two boxers went for 41 rounds. Jesus! At which point, uh, both of them were too tired to continue, and, um, like, the, the male spectators were obviously very upset, even though it was very obvious that both men, like, literally could not continue, and they yeah. were super beaten up, obviously. It says she wrote that one man had broken a hand, and, like, it was bad. Oh, um, and somehow uh, Winifred had gotten into this match. She had, like, found, like, a hidden section up above <laughs> overlooking the arena. And so she was able to, you know, write about that fight and kind of she. what she said is she this is her quote from, like, the the article she wrote. She said, I have seen men not as women see them, but as men see them. Men have a world into which women cannot enter. They have a being that women cannot understand. I learned all of this at this prize fight. So she's like, there's this whole other world that we're not allowed to be in that, you know, like men are just men and it's weird. (laughs) Right. And women, yeah, were excluded from those events, that world, that side of masculinity. And so it's like a mind. It must have been a mind blowing experience to see. Oh, yeah. She probably was, like, shocked. Especially, like, when people were upset that these two men that had literally just beaten the shit out of each other couldn't continue. I'm sure she's like, the fuck, guys? Like, we should have stopped this a while ago. Like, you seriously want more? Your bloodlust is not satiated? And this was back before everyone was just so desensitized to violence that, you know, you watch a Rambo movie and giggle. (laughs) Right? Exactly. So besides starting an ambulance service and being one of the first um, female sports writers, she was also the second woman ever to interview a president. Damn! Uh, The first was Anne Royal, who reportedly um, cornered John Quincy Adams as he was swimming naked in the Potomac and sat on his clothes until he until she he gave her an interview, which is I've heard that a fantastic way of interviewing someone. I have heard that story. That is amazing. Um, but what, uh, Winifred did was she, so she interviewed Benjamin Harris while he was on his campaign trail and she was actually smuggled on board of his train by the governor of the, of California at the time. So she must've had some kind of connection or something. So they hid her under a dining car table, which had like an, a a larger than usual tablecloth and then when the president came and sat down to eat she just kind of like popped out and was like all right let's do an interview oh my god that is hilarious 
He's like, wait, you're not the sex worker I ordered. Right, exactly. She's like, no, but let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah, please tell me who were you expecting, sir? Right. And then in that same year that she she interviewed the president, she also went and did an investigation on the leper colony of Molokai in Hawaii. <gasps> Shut the fuck up. What? That actually, I talk about that in my story. Really? Shut the fuck up. This is so fucking That's weird. Insane. I Talk hate about this. weird coincidences that and always I, seem to happen on our show. We've had we've had people ask us um if we know each other's stories beforehand and we don't. So like when we're freaking out, that's genuine. You're right. And it makes these weird little like kismet moments like adorable but i'm feeling like a little weird right now like right like it's like where, where's the camera how did she know is my grandmother going to appear to me warning me of some great evil like did i open <laughs> the veil right um so besides writing she also was active in organizing various charities and public benefactions um using her column in the examiner to like talk about it and then she, so after a while, the the owner of the Chicago Examiner opened the New York Journal in New York and was like, okay, we have this new newspaper. We need to get it circulating. Go to New York. So she went to New York, did not like New York, uh, lasted only two years until she moved to Denver, Colorado and started writing for the Denver Post, which was not owned by the same guy. But she continued to write articles for her old magazine. So she'd, she'd write articles and send them back to, um, like, the Examiner and the New York Journal. Okay. So she was, like, dual working at the time. But because she did that, um, her more well, you know, the more well-connected San Francisco Examiner would send her on jobs. So... The newspaper, the San Francisco Examiner, launched a campaign against Mormon polygamy in, the, in 1898, and they sent her uh, to Utah to report from, like, the ground on what was going on. Holy shit. Which is kind of a weird one. Um, she also was sent... I don't know if she was sent or if she just went to Galveston, Texas, after the freak hurricane in 1900, which killed 7,000 people. Holy but she went, fuck. she disguised herself as a boy... You know, got through the police cordon because they cordoned off that whole city when it happened. Yeah. It was an absolute disaster. Right. So she got through all. She dressed as a boy and got through all of that. And the headline that they wrote was this. Corpse laden waters lit by funeral pyres. Winifred Black crosses the dismal bay of death to the desolate city of disaster. I want to get that tattooed on me because, like, the alliteration, the imagery that brings to mind is devastating. Right? That is such, like, a well-written headline. Right? Like, I don't need the rest of the article. I'm done. <laughs> right? Um, and one thing good that came of this is she, when she was down there, she collected funds through the papers she was writing for and opened up a temporary hospital to administer relief to the people that were still living there. Oh. Yeah. That's so sweet. She was a sweetie. So she also reported on another natural disaster in 1906. She reported um on the San Francisco earthquake. Oh shit. 
thank God they had ambulances, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> You're welcome, San um, Francisco. And then in 1907, kind of a weird thing happened. So she was observing the trial of uh, Henry or Harry. Wow. Harry K. Thaw, um, who murdered the architect Stanford White over what was known as like the woman in red, which was um, Thaw's wife, Evelyn Nesbitt Thaw. And it was this whole thing. I didn't really oh, look too much into it. I but, think I, I um, think I know that one. Is that the one that happened like below the statue of Venus or something? I think it was in New York. I literally have no idea. Okay, I I think I've heard of this case, and other true crime junkies are like going. Her name ah! sounds super familiar. I think she was like a famous model. Uh, just a side note, I did look. And I didn't look into it, but it it was noted in one of the articles that I read that he got off on insanity. Yeah. That, Just, okay. So that is the case I'm thinking of. Yeah. That was bonkers. Um, yeah. But during this coverage, Black and Winifred and a lot of the other female reporters were very sympathetic to um, Evelyn, the wife, you know, because obviously some shit went down. Well, I think it was that her husband or no the guy who was killed took her virginity when she was what we would consider today quite underage and like she was kind of like sleeping with him for a while and it kind of fucked her up and so I think when she got married to the murderer he like was all pissed off about it and killed him in retribution for her. Like, wow, th- there was there was a lot of drama and intrigue with that case. I don't remember all the details, but there was some what we would consider maybe statutory rape today. <laughs> yeah, okay, some gross but, shit. Um, because these women were so sympath- sympathetic, a male reporter started calling them sob sisters. Oh my and god! She they actually wrote that Evelyn was like the biggest sob sister of them all, and I'm like, wow, like they're having empathy. Like, stop being a dick. Also, screw that guy. I'm taking that back, and that's what I'm going to tell my friends now when I need to vent. Hey, will you be my sob sister for a moment? Because I've had a rough day. I that's fantastic. I would be okay with that. That should be a new tier on our Patreon. Sob sisters. We'll have the sewing circle. Sob sisters. Something else. I don't know. Right. So she wrote her entire life. In fact, uh, they talk about her when she was old, and it says nearly blind and confined to bed with diabetes. She continued her work well into her seventies, dictating some nine articles a week. Um, for the for like the San Francisco Examiner, she was so popular and like, and she was very devoted to the San Francisco like area in the city. That upon her death in 1936, the mayor of San Francisco ordered her body to lie in state so people could come by and like pay her tribute. And they said thousands did it. And the Examiner that she used to write for wrote stories about her that appeared on the front page for three days. Oh, my God. They're like, Winifred, thank you for making sure I had an ambulance when I broke my leg. <laughs> right. One thing that was noted, though, is that throughout her career as a journalist, she absolutely hated being called a stunt girl. She 
was not happy about that. She was just like, no, I'm just a newspaper woman. Like, I'm just doing what I, you know, things that I need that need to be told, you know. Right. It The title kind of cheapens what she's doing and makes it more of a novelty versus, no, I'm doing exactly what other journalists are or should be doing. And I'm just as professional. I'm not doing stunts. I'm not performing like this is real work. Right. I still but love yeah, the name. So she, <laughs> she lived a long life that was very, very devoted to the work of being a journalist. All right. Next, I have Eva Valish. Um, originally Eva McDonald when she was born in 1866. And as a child, she moved to Minnesota. Yay! Minnesota! Um, she started out as a typesetter in a print shop where she joined a typographer's union. And through that, it kind of sparked her love of labor issues and kind of got her into that, you know, journalistic, newspapery world, you know? Okay. So she wrote for um, the Daily Globe, which was a Minneapolis newspaper. I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist because I've never heard of it. Probably not. Anymore. Doesn't exist anymore. It's never existed. These are lies. Right. And she took up the pen name Eva Gay. Um, oh, my God. I and... love it. What? Oh, my God. I love it. <laughs> All right. Way to change your name. Like, no one's going to figure that one out. All Everyone in this in these stories have bitching names. Like, whether it's their real name or their fake name. Like, right. everyone's killing it. So her big... And it was, it was one of her first, but her big ones are... It's a series called Among the Girls Who Toil. Actually, this one wasn't a series, I don't think. And I read this one, too. Oh, my God. This one was a little bit better because it was, like, all on one page of a newspaper, but it was real tiny. But they had some nice illustrations, so, you know, that made it better. But, so, yeah, it was called Among the Girls Who Toil, and it talked about the terrible conditions of um, factories in Minneapolis and St. Paul, particularly, um, like, sack making factories and mattress factories or like bag making factories I guess I should say but they were like to hold flour and stuff so that's why I said okay. sack <laughs> um, and like it's really interesting because like looking at the headline so the headline was actually called the toiling women and it says Eva Gay's trip through the bag and mattress factories of Minneapolis sewing amid clouds of dust hardships hand in hand with small wages and she does. She goes on and to t- talk about like the first place she goes to was so bad with like dust and lint and stuff from these bags being cut and sewn that she like couldn't see and that like the women were coughing. And she goes to talk about like that at one of the factories, they're not they weren't paid per item like at, in some they were paid her like day they had to as a factory they had to produce i think it was 2200 units of bags to get a dollar a day what the fuck some of the other factories women could make up to like six dollars or eight dollars in a week in oh in a week though versus the five but like they were all pretty low but yeah she she goes to i think four factories at least in the article i was reading and like two of them are like super shitty one of them is actually like super nice but like 
what kind of like went across all of it is they had like these weird rules like you'd get penalized for talking you'd get penalized for taking a break to eat you know like it was really weird and like you know it would all you know and i'm sure they got harassed like oh and, like, yeah in one of the factories um all the like bottom window you know it was a big factory and they had painted over all the bottoms of the windows and she like stood up on a chair and looked out and it was like a beautiful view of the mississippi and so she asked the women she was like well why did they paint the windows and they were like well the foreman said it was to stop you know one from so we can't like pause in our work to look outside but mainly it was because they don't want men looking in at the women at work and i'm like well that was a whole lot of bullshit what the fuck and also right. to, like, pull that shitty stuff and say, no, 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 no. It's just because men can't control themselves. And I don't want them leering at you. we can't, you. you know, show our shoulders. Yeah. I get it, though. Women are very distracting. That's why I had to cover my shoulders in high school because 50% of uh, the school population just could not fucking focus if my shoulders were we're showing right they cannot control themselves i'm luckily i was able to show my ankles but i had pretty fugly ankles so (laughs) so two weeks after this article came out um one of the the factories that she had covered went on strike which was actually the first women's strike in in the twin cities holy shit all right so like obviously they were like you did this and i mean she kind of did but um I think it's a good thing. Like, it doesn't really say where the strike went, at least when I was researching her. But, like, she became, like, a star in the labor movement in general because that's what she would do. She would go undercover in these various places and be like, guys, stop treating your workers like shit. Such a novel And all of these companies were like... All of these companies were like, oh, we wouldn't hire her. Like, well, we're not going to be tricked into, like, talking to some reporter about stuff. But um, she w- she looked very young and she kind of, she would dress up, you know, like a boy or, or like a ragged woman to, like, looking for work. And they would let her in, which is fantastic. I like to think she, like, would wear a wig and then, like, rip it off and been like, y'all been punked. And that's right. where Ashton Kutcher got the idea. He's like, oh, we're going to do the same thing, except we're going to prank celebrities instead of being socially progressive. Right. Um, so she actually was a bi- also a big advocate for, like, the eight-hour workday. And she went on to become the first woman to run for Minneapolis school board um, for the Democratic Party. But other women didn't like her because they were like, well, you support the working class. Whereas, you know, a lot of the other women were, like, middle or upper class, and I don't know. Class. It's a thing. Yeah, and again, this is kind of going into what we talk about all the time, how a lot of movements are pushed forward by the most privileged of a group. And so, in this case, upper middle class white women who are like, I don't know about the working class. They smell and they look dirty. Right. And when, you know, when it's a school board, of course, the upper class are like, well, I don't want them pushing their agendas through, you know. What equal education for all the children? Oh, pish posh. <laughs> um, so she went on to become an editor. Like she kind of got out of the writing and she became an editor. 
Uh, she eventually published her own magazine with her second husband, um, and she actually lived to the age of 90. Damn, and, girl! Know, died peacefully. Um, her last few decades, though, uh, were spent as a proofreader for New York Times. Whoa! Yeah, that's huge. Holy shit. So my last woman is Helen Cusack. Oh, John's mom. Yeah, maybe grandma. You know, this is the 1800s. John Cusack is timeless. Don't you tell me otherwise. <laughs> um, I actually have no idea if they're related in any way. Hersery headcanon, that's his mom. <laughs> <laughs> so... She was very much doing the same thing that Eva was, just in Chicago. Okay. So she she would she was known. I didn't get to read hers because hers is actually like a twenty-one piece thing. Uh, and I didn't want to read all of that in tiny tiny print. Fair. I didn't read like some of them. I just didn't read all twenty-one articles <laughs> because that's a lot of articles. Um, but yeah, she would kind of do the same thing, dress in shabby frocks, a veil, and go job hunting. So unlike, um, Eva, she would actually like, cause a lot of what I read in Eva's articles, she didn't like work. She kind of just interviewed, she just found her way into the factories and then interviewed <laughs> people. It was really interesting. Because she was like, oh, I just ignored all the no soliciting signs and kept walking. I'm oh, like, my God. You're fantastic. But Helen actually went and, like, worked in the sweatshops and stitched the coats and, you know, and, the, and then also, like, interviewed people while, you know, working with them. Um, one of the places she did this at was the Excelsior Underwear Company. Uh, where she was handed a stack of shirts to sew, and they said, you'll get 80 cents for each dozen shirts you sew. Okay? What the fuck? However, they then also charged her 50 cents to rent the sewing machine at her job, and 35 cents for the thread to sew the shirts they had given her. So, wait, here, okay, here's the thing, though. She's losing money in the first dozen shirts then. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. In another factory she was in, a woman was got when she was there, a woman got yelled at for getting stains on one of the shirts she was working on and they said that they she'd have she'd have to pay to launder them herself. Wow. One of the lines from her article was, but worse than broken shoes, ragged clothes, filthy closets, poor light, high temperature, and vitiated atmosphere was the cruel treatment by the people in authority. So she wrote under the name Nell Nelson, which is actually, I think, probably the most famous of the three. Because I know I've heard heard Nell, the name Nell Nelson before. And the 21 piece thing she wrote was called City Slave Girls. And it ran for, essentially, I think it ended up being like 22 weeks, but it was almost weekly. I think they only missed a week. Um, And it was, it was very moving. Like she, you know, because she put people right in there because she could. She had been there. So she was able to write, you know, from the shoes of someone that was on the ground working. 
And it was a very powerful, like, and moving piece. And, like, the few excerpts I've read from it were just, like, Jesus Christ. Like, how terrible for these women. Right. And then it's, this isn't secondhand. This isn't, oh, shit. (laughs) Nice ceiling. Oh, my God. Sorry. My, the dog bed leaned forward, which caused my phone to fall, which then caused my, my cider to also fall. And it scared the absolute hell out of me. Hold on. But yeah, so she was on the ground floor. She was there. This isn't hearsay. This isn't her reporting on, you know, rumors. She can say, no, I was there on the ground floor witnessing this firsthand. Right, exactly. And and what she witnessed were was a week's wages were as little as two fifty for ten hour days, six days a week. Someone would earn two fifty. Jesus. Obviously, when her articles came out, it. it you know, it was very controversial and it actually caused, you know, a lot of campaigning to end sweatshops in Illinois. Illinois? Illinois? Illinois. The S is silent. I was like, Illinois, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. No, it's Illinois. <laughs> um, And something else she, she said to kind of sum up her anger and how complacent Americans were with this system that was in place. She said the birthright of an American girl may be a glorious attribute on the deck of a transatlantic steamship or the floor of a London ballroom, but it is not worth the flop of a brass farthing in the cloak factories of Chicago. And then she dropped her quill and she's like, so figure it out. Right. So I actually, I have one, last excerpt from her and it's a little long and I'm sorry but this is like directly from her article so I'll, I'll try and make it quick are you ready yes at five o'clock I was so tired I didn't know what to do with myself my hair was matted with moisture and dusted with lint and my head throbbed in pain I perspired at every pore and the steels in my corset rusted all the front of my nice hamburg underwaist I threw the big brown chinchilla overcoat I had finished on the floor and for a period of three minutes fell into a state of voluptuous inertia. With my sixth sense, I saw the boss pick up the garment and another overcoat came flying across the table and dropped all over me. I threaded my needle preparatory to finishing my ninth garment, began a light calisthenic movement of my right arm to scatter the pain and limber up my elbow, and I went through perhaps seven motions with my chair slightly tilted back by way of stretching my lower extremities when I was interrupted by the benevolent young tailor and his incombustible cigar. Grabbing the frame of my chair, he jammed it down on all fours and told me to get to work. Holy shit. Like, like people are basically just getting the green light to abuse their employees and pay them absolutely nothing. And honestly, in those kinds of conditions, the fact that people weren't like 24-7 having a a mental breakdown blows my mind. Right. And so those are my three women, but I'm going to do like a short wrap up of this in general because... um, the life of an American newspaper girl was generally a short one a lot. Like, two of the women in my stories actually had really long, like, and they did it their whole lives. But that was very uncommon because it was a lot of long hours. It was tiring. I mean, think about what I just read from um, Helen. Like, right. after writing that story, I'd be like, nah, I'm done. <laughs> like, 
I hurt. I hurt in so many places. Yeah. Um, but it did, you know, and it, it took a toll on their emotional and physical health. And a lot of these women ended up being divorced several times, you know, not having children or, you know, various things. For example, uh, Winifred, she married twice and both marriages failed. Um, Nellie Bly's reporting kind of didn't go so well after she got married. Like she, her style really changed and then she kind of stopped writing because she got really involved in her husband's business. And then, uh, Nell Nelson or Helen Cusack married well, um, and then abandoned news reporting to breed horses. So like it, it was kind of like they say, like acting sometimes does like it burns you out you burn hot and fast and then you're done yeah yeah that would be a really intense lifestyle to maintain yeah so yeah those were my girl stunt reporters that is amazing and I didn't know like I knew Nellie Bly and I knew there were women who did that I didn't know that they had like a name like that category that's super cool well, thank you, Who are you for covering sharing. today. Um, so, what is your Hawaii connection? Okay, so I'm still kind of freaking out about that. Like, <laughs> I know, right? There's like a slight tingle, like, ooh. Yeah, like, what is happening right now? Are we just, are we going to sync up from video chatting? And, <laughs> um, yep. So I've, I'd heard of this woman through a cracked article and kind of kept her in the back of my mind. But with everything that's going on, I decided to cover someone who uh, is involved in medical advancements. And so today, I'm excited. Um, And here's the thing. The story will get frustrating, but I'm going to bring it back up. So just strap in, strap on, be there with me. All the way back up? Or is it like a deep dive down and then it just comes up a little? Like a little boop? I'd say like halfway up. Okay. Like the legacy is pretty good. Okay, so I am. We'll see. (laughs) Call the number at the bottom of your screen to tell Emily whether she was right or not. (laughs) On what scale level of back up would you determine Emily's story got to? On 1-800-Depressing-Herstory. So I am covering Alice Augusta Ball. So Alice Ball was born on July 24th, 1892, which is less than a month before Lizzie Borden killed her parents in Seattle. She was born in Seattle, which was on the opposite end of the country from where Lizzie Borden killed her parents. I mean, because those things are totally 1000% related. Yes, it was the same year. And honestly, I was super into Lizzie Borden for a while when I was in middle school. And so I memorized a bunch of weird things about it that I still remember and 1892 is kind of like my focal point for the past. Like, okay, how long after or before was it? And that's how I get into the mindset of like what was going on at the time. <laughs> I don't know if that's like scary or awesome or. Call the what? number at the bottom of your screen to tell Emily if that's scary or awesome. <laughs> you know what? Don't call the number at the bottom of the screen. Email us at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. Ooh, that was a good butt plug. Masterful. I'm getting better at this. (laughs) So Alice was the third of four children born to a middle class black family. And her family was made up of some pretty cool people. So her father was a newspaper editor of the Colored Citizen newspaper and a photographer 
and also a lawyer in his free time. Like he had a lawyer side hustle as a black man in the late 1800s. Lawyer side hustle. Yeah. And then Alice's grandfather, James Ball Sr., was a famous photographer, and he was one of the first African-Americans to utilize the photographic technique of daguerreotypy. Don't at me if I said that wrong. I know I did. And this is a special technique used in photography, and that's literally all I know. But Just it, leave it at that. Moving on. It's a big deal. Just trust me. Now, Alice and her parents were black. However... On Alice's birth certificate, her parents are listed as white, which is a little odd. Well, first off, like, how did they get away with that? And second off, why? So, first of all, you you used to be able to leave the hospital without naming your baby. Like, that baby never needed a name back in the day. But so historians think that this was an attempt to help Alice overcome racism that was clearly very prevalent at the time. And like quote-unquote pass in white society and in pictures of her she does seem to have a bit of a lighter complexion but yeah but who's gonna be like can i see your birth certificate exactly it's like i don't believe that you're white let me see your birth certificate how black are you though (laughs) well and it's true i guess i guess you're right because like back then when you had like mixed race children a lot of times they'd be you know, unincluded from both sides of the spectrum because they were either too white or too black and they were in the middle and, you know, nobody wanted them. And that was really sad and depressing. Yeah, exactly. And we still deal with that today, too. So that was just kind of a weird thing. In 1903, Alice and her family left the tossed salad and scrambled eggs of Seattle. Shout out, Fraser fans. To move to Honolulu, Hawaii. So the goal of this move was to help her grandfather with his arthritis pain. And honestly, can we bring that back? Like, can a doctor prescribe me a vacation to Hawaii or the south of France or wherever people used to go to deal with their illnesses back in the day? Right. Like, I have migraines. Oh, go go rest in Hawaii. The barometric pressure is better. You know, I when I had my hip issues... They were very quick to subscribe me, like, narcotics and stuff. I should have just been like, yeah, but if I go to Hawaii, will this get better? <laughs> Can you prescribe me that Just instead? write that on your prescription pad. Yeah. Can I get a note for work? <laughs> Unfortunately, the move to Hawaii didn't really help things because her grandfather just died. I don't think it was from the oh, arthritis, no. but he just died. So they moved back he to Seattle. He was old. It's fine. Yeah. And, like... What a bummer, because first your grandfather dies, and then you move away from Hawaii. Like, I don't know about you. I know everyone grieves differently, but I grieve much better when I'm laying on a beach with a fruity drink in my hand, getting wasted and surfing. (sighs) But that's just me. So anyway, Alice coped with having a move back to Seattle by kicking academic ass, especially excelling in science. So after graduating from high school in 1910, she went on to study chemistry at the University of Washington. And some historians... Get that STEM girl. Right? And some historians think that she gravitated towards chemistry because of her family's heavy involvement with photography. Because it's... The developing photos is chemistry. Yeah, it's a chemistry. A chemical process. Right. 
So after earning her bachelor's degree in pharmaceutical chemistry in 1912, she went on to earn a second bachelor's degree in the science of pharmacy in 1914. And like, I don't know if it really only took you two years to get your bachelor's back then or if she was a genius, but her three headcanon, she's a genius. Either way, she's a genius. Right. 100%. <laughs> so while earning her degree, she co-authored a 10-page article titled, The Most Compelling Thing Ever, Benozylations in Ether Solution. I know exactly what that is. I have like a rock hard science boner right now. Like that is right? so compelling. <laughs> like, that is so intense. What is really? I'll be right back. With... Five minutes. <laughs> okay. Jeopardy music. And we're back. Thank you. So what is really interesting though is that uh, it was published in the prestigious Journal of the American Chemical Society. And as a black woman, this was a massive accomplishment because this like didn't happen. Yeah, that's huge. Now, Alice was a big deal and was offered scholarships from a variety of universities, including uh, Berkeley in California and the College of Hawaii, which is now called the University of Hawaii. That's, I mean, I don't know how, like, prestigious Hawaii University is, but, like, Berkeley, that's huge. I feel like the, the University of Hawaii has to be a pretty big deal just because they need to weed out all the people who are like, I just want to go to Hawaii. And I like to so I like to think that Alice never forgot her short time in Hawaii and was eager to return to the tropical paradise that was born from the ashes of volcanic activity. That was that was beautiful. You should put that on a shirt. I am a stunt girl reporter and I have the best bylines. Yeah. So naturally, she decided to pursue her master's in chemistry at the College of Hawaii. Good girl. While there, she studied the chemical properties of the kava plants. And these are, I know everyone's really interested. These are little deciduous shrubs that are native to the Pacific Islands. And it's also known as the intoxicating pepper, which I feel like should be a drink that we should drink on this podcast. Or if it's not, we need to make it. Oh, we 100% need to make that if it's not a thing. If you know it's a thing, though, send us the recipe and we'll make it. Yeah, we'll have like a special intoxicating pepper episode or something. It'll be amazing. So because of this, she was approached by Dr. Harry T. Hallman to study the chemical properties of Chilmugra oil. And so this is the oil that comes from the Chilmugra tree, which I, I think it was because she was studying the chemical makeup of plants and so it's like Probably. oh study it of a different plant so this is a tree that's commonly used in uh eastern medicines to treat leprosy or the oil is what, what does it look like i don't know <laughs> i didn't actually google that hot seat emily what does this tree look like well it's got some bark and it's got some green bits at the top and it grows out of the ground Perfect. Let's go. There we go. So Dr. Hallman was unsatisfied with the existing treatments for leprosy and knew that there was a better way. He's in the hospital treating leprosy patients and he's like, this fucking sucks. Figure it out. So he recruited Alice to help him with his research because she's a fucking genius, as we've said. So real quick, I don't know about you, but I learned about leprosy before I'd ever even heard of cancer because I went to a Catholic school and Jesus was like tight with lepers. 
Like, they were BFFs. They were friends on Facebook. They poked each other every day. But for anyone who doesn't know, leprosy, which is also known as Hansen's disease, is an infection caused by slow-growing bacteria, and it can affect different parts of the body, including the nerves, skin, and eyes. If not treated, super fun, it can cause blindness, paralysis, and the crippling of the limbs. Oh, yeah. It's it's bad news. Yeah. And leprosy is the common name. Hansen's disease is kind of the rebranding, I guess you would say. But I do refer yeah, to it, it as leprosy it because it's just what everyone's... I say it and you know it. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I'm fine with that. I could see a bunch of people who are like, what the fuck is Hansen's disease? They Google it and they see leprosy and they're like, what the fuck, Emily? Well, I mean, that's kind of why they did it is because leprosy has such a negative connotation to it that they were like, all right, we need something else to call this so that people aren't going to be like, oh, my God, it's a leper. Panic, panic. Right. And I do get into that a little bit. But just for clarity's sake, I do refer to it as leprosy. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, So symptoms can also include hair loss, growth of painful lumps, skin discoloration, ulcers on the feet, and thick or dry skin. These poor people. Yeah. So back in the day, people thought leprosy was very easily transmitted from person to person. Like, if you look at someone with leprosy the wrong way, you can catch it. However, while it's not known exactly how it's transmitted, you have to be in prolonged close contact with an untreated person for months before you even have like a chance of catching it and a lot of people are actually immune to it so Hmm. yeah that's good to know i guess i mean like sorry if you catch it but yay for the rest of us yeah but i mean there is a huge social stigma with this i mean it was kind of yeah oh yeah i i would i would almost compare it to the way we treat we treated aids patients like you can't be around fucking anyone So this lack of understanding combined with very visible symptoms results in sufferers being exiled from society, often living in isolation with other sufferers. And this is why it was so cool for Jesus to be hanging out with them. (laughs) Good on you, Jesus. So in in Hawaii, where Alice was studying, sufferers who were mostly native Hawaiians, so there's this like little bit of a racial component, they were arrested and sent to a leper colony on the island of Molokai. And that's where, was it Winifred who who covered that story? Yes. Yeah, which is, like, this is creepy. And I love it. I feel so right. close to you right now. And actually, I found an article that was published in 2015. At the time of that article, it was still home to 16 people with leprosy. And, like, Hawaii was still trying to figure out, well, when these people die, what are we going to do with the, like, what are we going to do with this land? How are we going to deal with it? Um, I also started reading an article on it, and I won't go into detail, but this place is 100% haunted. Because this is hell. Oh, it has to be. This place is hell. Some weird shit went down there. Yeah. And it's also absolutely tragic, because since no one would come back from the island, like, even if your symptoms somehow went away... You were never coming back. Because of this, when someone was diagnosed with leprosy, their families would hold funerals because the person was essentially dead to them. It's kind of like if you get kicked out of an Amish community. Like, you are dead to them. Yeah, if you go back, like, people pretend you're basically a ghost. They can't see or hear you. It's crazy. 
So to aid in treating leprosy, uh, the Chilmugra oil would be mixed with other materials and used as a topical. So Chilmugra oil was used to try to treat leprosy. Unfortunately, it wasn't a super effective treatment because uh, it was too sticky. And this is a, you know, it. So it's like putting maple syrup on your skin. Yeah. And it would it would like clump up and it wouldn't stay on the skin. And then attempts to inject the oil were unsuccessful because the viscous material would collect under the skin. And instead of being absorbed, it would basically form into boils and make the person's skin look like bubble wrap. Oh, that's gross. Because they need that. They need more skin problems. Yeah, they don't have enough already. That's not like 90% of the symptoms of leprosy. It's fine. I was making a really disturbed face that you guys couldn't see, but that that's gross. It was, that's, that's nasty. It was gorgeous. <laughs> so while studying the Chilmugra oil and its chemical makeup, Alice was actually able to develop an injectable form that didn't cause bubble wrap skin. Oh, shit. And could be absorbed by the body. And so this... You go, girl. Right? And so this next part is for our femistry buffs and taken directly from Wikipedia because I don't understand this, but I'm sure if you know, you'll appreciate it. Quote, her technique involved isolating uh, ester compounds from the oil and chemically modifying them, producing a substance that retained the oil's therapeutic properties and was absorbed by the body when injected. Hmm. No idea what that means, but I kind of understand that, you know, it worked. Black girl magic. So this is a fucking game changer. This oil has been used since the 1300s, and it hasn't really been that effective. And Alice, at 23 years old, was able to develop an injectable form to treat leprosy. Jeez. Absolutely insane. insane. I got married when I was 23, but that that's about it. <laughs> That's, that's all I got. You could have been curing leprosy. <laughs> I'm sorry, world. I've let you down. Oh, my God. Yeah, everyone after 23, if you haven't done something cool, everything after is just a waste. You missed, you missed the boat. <laughs> and then Alice died. What? Yep. Wait, what? Yep. So she. That's it? She, There's just. She invented something and then she's just dead? Yes. And I was trying to figure out a way to like ease you into this, but she just dies. There was you had no transition. It was hey, she invented this at twenty three. Oh, and then she died. Yeah. So Alice had become ill while working on her research and went home to Seattle to receive treatment. And the cause of her illness is a bit of a mystery. It was originally listed as tuberculosis on her death certificate because everyone's just kind of like eh, everyone's dying of TB nowadays. It's the hip new thing. But a 1917 article suggested she could have died from chlorine poisoning after being exposed to it during her research. Whatever the cause, on December 31st, 1916, Alice Ball died at only 24 years old. She just died. Yep. I don't, I really don't think you can bring this back up, (laughs) even half. I'm going to get so many emails. Emily, you bitch, how dare you? You promised me the world and you delivered me shit. So what happened to Alice's groundbreaking research into leprosy treatment? Thankfully, it didn't you know die no, with I don't, her. I don't want to know. We're <laughs> ending the episode here. You need to like hang on to me really tight and just get into this. You need All to right. hunker down with me. So it didn't die with her, but unfortunately it did land in the hands of the wrong person. 
Arthur. See, I knew you were going to say that. Yes. Arthur L. Dean was a Harvard-educated chemist who was working at the College of Hawaii and would later become president of the university. He found Alice's research and had a light bulb moment. Arthur D. not only published Alice's findings under his own name without giving her credit, but he also named the technique that she had created after himself, calling it the Dean Method. Ew, that just sounds gross. Yeah, it does. Like, fuck him. Uh, and then he began producing huge quantities of the injectable Chilmugra oil that Alice had developed and began selling it. Yeah. Making bank off of some dead woman's research. What a dick. Right. And so he did build on it a little bit. Like, she had done all the groundwork, and he basically just, like, took it the next step. So he could have, like... It sounds like he kind of, like, just mass-produced it. Basically, she had the instructions and all the parts, and he put the IKEA furniture together. Yeah. Still a dick. So he did nothing. Fuck him. So thankfully, no, I didn't get this couch at Ikea. <laughs> I made this. Yeah, I made this from scratch and it wasn't definitely wasn't created by a dead black woman who I can totally steal from because she's dead and a person of color. What a terrible, terrible man. Thankfully, Dr. Harry T. Holloman, the guy who had originally recruited Alice to do research into the Chamucra oil, figured out what Dean was doing and called him out on it. Oh, good. I... When you first said someone, like, got a hold of her research, that's who I thought it was going to be. I was going to be like, is the dude that recruited her an asshole? No, I had I had the same thought when I was doing my research. I was like, Harry, you son of a bitch, don't let me down. And he didn't. He did it. Good job, Harry. So I'm not sure when this was or how he was called out or how all that went down, but it wasn't, Alice was not officially recognized for her work until six years after her death. In 1922, a medical journal made a brief mention of her referring to the uh, extraction method as the ball method. Yay. Which sounds way more bala. So much better. Yes. Despite this, you can still find articles authored by Dean about his work with the Chilmugra oil and treating leprosy. So... What happened to this walking sphincter of a human being who stole credit from a dead woman? Arthur served as the president of the university for 13 years, and I actually found an old article from the Harvard Crimson published on June 2nd, 1931, that talks about how the University of Hawaii honored him by renaming the biology building Arthur Lehman Dean Hall after him. And the last line of this article reads, Dr. Dean also has achieved some scientific fame through his research concerning the use of Chilmugra oil in the cure for leprosy. Fuck you, dude. So he basically right. suffered Although no Although I do kind of like that they, like, low-keyed it, like, oh, he just got some fame. Yeah, like... But still, fuck you, dude. Yeah, and they weren't trying to do that, but it was just like, oh, this is why he's... what what he's known for. Right. This is why we're naming a building after him. Yeah. And so after resigning as president of the university in 1927, he did hold a number of executive positions, basically suffered no consequences, and he lived a great life. But seriously, fuck this guy. Thankfully. Put a curse on all of his descendants. No, that's mean. Yeah. Just just him. Like. Just him. Yeah. In the grave. I hope he always had a ruddy nose. Like he always had a cold. Just, Just something. Yeah, he always had, like, a low-key headache. 
Just if anyone knows that, you know, something terrible happened to this dude, let, let us know. Please. All right. And now we're, we're coming back up because thankfully historians have worked very hard to bring Alice's contributions to light. And now we're getting into the legacy section. While Alice didn't live to reap the fruits of her labor, her work helped thousands of people, specifically those in Hawaii. 8,000 people who would have otherwise been exiled to Molokai Island, which was a fucking nightmare shit show, were able to be treated from home. No more living funerals, no more exile, no more broken families, all thanks to Alice Ball. That's awesome. The injection she created was the preferred treatment of leprosy from its creation in the early 1900s until the 1940s when sulfolamide drugs were developed. Yep. The technique that Alice developed to extract the Chilmugra oil is now known as the ball method, which sounds way better than the Dean method. The University of Hawaii didn't recognize Alice's rightful contributions for 90 freaking years. In 2000... Really, Hawaii? See, that that brings Hawaii down a few notches in my book now. Right. I'd rather go to the south of France now than Hawaii. (laughs) Here's the thing, though. I'm going to go to Hawaii. I'm just going to start passing out flyers about how much of a badass Alice Ball is and, like, start Right, like, guys, this is your history. Yes. In 2000, they finally got their shit together and dedicated a plaque to her, which is on the school's only Chilmugra tree behind Bachman Hall. So if anyone goes to the University of Hawaii, please send us a picture because I want to see that. Yeah, plus Emily doesn't know what the tree looks like, so we want to see the tree. I know as it's well. brown with green things on top. Don't you patronize me. On the same day the plaque was dedicated, the Lieutenant Governor of Hawaii, Maisie Hirono, declared February 29th Alice Ball Day, which is celebrated every four years. And we just missed it. Well- and now we have to wait four years. Why couldn't they make it, like, the 28th? Like, it's great that they, like, gave her a day honoring her, but why the fuck did they pick February 29th? I like to think of it as symbolic as to how women make, like, 74 cents on the dollar to men, and so she only gets a holiday that happens once every four years. Like, ugh. But they they did something. I'll give them credit for that. In 2007, uh, the University of Hawaii Board of Regents honored Alice with a Medal of Distinction, which is the university's highest honor. In March of 2016, Hawaii Magazine ranked Alice as one of the most influential women in Hawaiian history. In 2018, a park in Seattle's Greenwood neighborhood was named after Alice. And again, send us those pictures, please. And then... In 2019, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which is must be a super niche school, added her name to its main building along with history heroes Florence Nightingale and Marie Curie to honor her contributions to global health. Wow, that's huge. Like, those are top, top names right there. Right. and w- That's amazing. You don't have to be a history buff. To know those names. You don't even have to know who those women are, but you have heard those names. But Alice Ball, I'd never heard of her. So that's insane that she's up there with those two, like, heavy hitters. That's why we're changing it. We're making people know. Finally, as recently as February of this year, so 2020, a short film called The Ball Method was slated to premiere at the Pan-African Film Festival, and we definitely need to watch it. Yeah. And so my final note... 
Unfortunately, the biology building is still named after Arthur L. Dean, but thankfully there are proposals to rename the hall after Alice Ball instead. And I found an article from the Star Bulletin from 2000 by Sir... Uh, Susan Kreifels about the plaque dedication. Um... And in it, pre the president of the Associated Students of University of Hawaii, P. Ilani Smith, states, quote, Hawaii has never heard her song sung. And she is saying this in reference to Alice not getting due credit and the hall needing to be renamed. Because, like, right? I get the guy was president of the university, but he's also a thief. He stole from a dead woman. I don't care if you were the president of the world. Fuck you, dude. Right, that's a shitty thing to do. And then uh, P. Ilani Smith also talks about how a combination of sexism and racism contributed to Alice's contributions being erased from history, which, yeah. Uh, also, Stan Ali, who is a federal retiree from Baltimore, who has researched Alice and been a really big part of the movement to bring her story to light, has worked, uh, said that he had planned on having a portrait of Alice installed on campus and that he was going to donate $1,000 to start a scholarship in her name. And I don't know if that happened, but... Yeah, if anyone knows, let us know. But that's amazing. Yeah, if you've received the Alice Ball scholarship, please tell us your story, because that's also amazing. But yeah, that is the story of Alice Augusta Ball. And I think everyone at the University of Hawaii, when you're actually able to return to classes after this quarantine, should just start yelling... Rename the hall after ball. Rename the hall after ball. Yep. Get it. I agree. Just make shirts, signs, mugs. Wine glasses. Get that hall renamed. <laughs> Coasters. Tattoo it on your body. Yeah. Maybe your forehead. Yeah. All right. Well, Kelly, what are you thankful for? First. No kidding. We have this argument every time we record. Yeah. Um, I'm really thankful for just all all the love that's being seen. Like, we're in a really shitty time, but there's a lot going on that, that's good. You know, you got the hearts for healthcare workers. You've got, you know, people hand-making masks. You've got just a whole bunch of stuff going on. And, you know, people are really rallying around one another. And that's so great, you know, from a distance, you know, at least six feet. <laughs> But, like, I've been working fit testing nurses, and a few of them have thanked me, and it's like, I'm doing it so I can help, like, because my normal job is behind the scenes. It's not helping anyone. And, you know, I want to do my part to be able to help people. And, you know, so I just, I want to, you know, all the gratitude and love, and, you know, I just want that to go out to everyone. That was really sweet. This is why you go first. <laughs> Yours are usually sweeter than mine. Oh, and I just want to give a quick shout out if they're still listening by this episode um, to Rich and Jean, who I'm currently working with. Go, Rich and so Jean. If they're still listening by episode like 53 or whatever, this, or 54, there's your shout out, guys. Aww. Um, I'm really thankful for a lot of the same stuff you were saying, uh, in particular, Jared's cousin, Tamara, who I've talked about on this podcast, like, a lot, because she's the one who survived four strokes, 
She's the one who's adopted. She was going to go adopt her son in China, but then the country shut down, and that's indefinitely paused. And She's a history badass. She is fucking making history as we speak. So right now she's like doing her thing. She's doing the distance learning with her son, who she had adopted from China a few years ago. And she's also hand-making masks for free for anyone who wants it. And, like, the comments are flooding in. So she was kind enough to make one for Jared and I. And, um, like I said, she's not charging for these. But we did ask if there's an organization that she would like a donation to go to. Just as a thank you for doing this incredible thing. And she did say the Ronald McDonald House because her son has some medical issues. And they had to leave the state to go see a medical specialist. And they stayed at the Ronald McDonald House while doing that. And she's like, it was an absolute game changer. It's such a wonderful organization. Like, they made it so much easier. Because no one wants to, like, travel because your son has a medical problem. Like. Right. So, and that's my kind of call to action for everyone. Whether you can donate or whether you have any financial power right now, just put something positive out into the world. Reach out to your friends post something silly, make a donation, just put something positive because God knows we really need it right now. Right. Share the love, share the positivity. Be a herstory hero. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAHpod. Twitter at WAH underscore pod. We have a website, whiningaboutherstory.com. We have a Patreon with if you just search whining about herstory. And email us, your herstory heroes, or anything else at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. If you have someone who's really killing it and you want them to be our say their name, do it. We love it. Do it. It makes their day. We had someone shout out their mom, Veronica. Love you, Veronica. A goddess. Love her. This woman is fantastic. And he came back and told us, well, actually, I think she told us just how much it made their day. And so, you know, you never know, even if they don't listen to podcasts, you could literally just play the say their name section for them. Yeah. And I bet it would make their day. It's the thought that counts and it costs you absolutely nothing. Also, except interacting with us, we have a Patreon. So if you want to support us financially and you can, please uh, subscribe. At, you can become a Patreon for as little as $1 a month and rate us five stars wherever you listen. You have no idea how helpful it is. We've gotten some really nice reviews recently. And like, that can be the positive thing you put into the world, guys. Right. It's a good thing. It, it makes us feel good. It makes and it makes us know that you enjoy what we're doing and that you know we're going to do it anyways, but it's nice to know that other people besides us enjoy. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And stay the fuck inside and wash your hands. Bye. Bye.